Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you Jay Roach, who you may know as the director of not one, but two legendary comedic franchises, Austin Powers and Meet the Parents. The trickiest part for me was getting used to being sued. <laughs> I got sued 15 times, I think, or something. Personally, my name. Wow. You, are, you are now being sued for millions of dollars because you have invaded my privacy. But his credits go far beyond Groovy Baby and the Fokker's Circle of Trust. His producing credits include Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Sasha Baron Cohen's Borat and Bruno. Great success! His work on TV has leaned towards the political, including the movie Recount, based on the Bush-Gore election, and Game Change, the Sarah Palin-John McCain satire. And if that's not enough for you, he directed Brian Cranston to an Oscar nomination in Trumbo. But as he informed our students, it took a long 10 years away from school before his career really took off. You know, it is a, a question, and it's the question I had, you know, that took me 10 years to answer, so uh, <laughs> not, not to be discouraging. Um, it, it still will work out, but it might take a while. You know, I did, I did so many different things to uh, kind of weasel my way in, including, you know, getting a job based on other people's you know, clips from other people's <laughs> movies. Um, but one of the things that I find uh, has been, has not only worked for me, but worked for many other people that have worked for me since since I uh, came up, was that the, the notion of getting work not in the typical way, like becoming a PA or a, you know, a camera assistant or a, you know, a producing assistant or something that's on the set in the middle of, the, to me, the very best gig you can get out of film school is as a writing assistant. I got a gig uh, from an old friend uh, being a writing assistant for a guy named Penn Densham who produced Backdraft and uh, a film which I wrote the story for called Blown Away and a few other things that they were, they were kind of, uh, you know, very much in the zone. And I was in their writing rooms just taking notes. I taught myself to type really fast, but beyond that, I would help them organize the notes into uh, manageable, accessible information kind of documents, and even sometimes took a shot and would organize the scenes at an outline order and try to present back to them, I, here's what I think you guys have in mind. And eventually they said, wow, you're kind of helping us write this. Why don't you write a couple of these scenes? I wrote some stuff without credit. And then one of them got really busy and got a gig doing a sci-fi television show. And he said, why don't you write the pilot? Uh, I have a story, you write the pilot. So I wrote a pilot. It got picked up as a series. It did not turn out to be a good series and didn't, uh, didn't last very long. But again, out of that, I got to direct second unit. And um, I got to direct <laughs> scenes that the directors didn't want to deal with. But it, you know, it was my first shot at directing actors. And I've hired since then a ton of writing assistants of my own. Being an assistant might be considered just paying your dues. But to Mr. Roach, it's incredibly valuable to be, to paraphrase Hamilton, in the room where it happens. Shauna Robertson, who became Judd Apatow's main producer, did 40-Year-Old Virgin and a slew of his films. Um, 
Larry Stuckey, who's now become my writing partner. Uh, Michael McCullers was our writing assistant on the first Austin Powers, wrote the sequels for the second two, just from being in those rooms wow. where you're in touch with every decision that goes into getting the film created and made. And it's an incredibly good way. You're involved in casting, you're involved in the studio, you know, the, all the politics, you hear everything in that room. You know, in comedies, the writing goes through the shoot, it goes through post-production. So you're kept involved through the shoot and you do get to end up on the set, but you're also the person up late at night, you know, uh, after everyone else has gone to bed, trying to make sense of the notes that came up in that rehearsal that day. You sit in rehearsals, you actually get to see the, the directors directing the actors because you're improving in the rehearsals and turning that into script pages. And, and as a writer producer, I would only hire the smartest people, young people who could, if they, were given a shot, probably do better at writing. I would always hire people I thought were smarter than us. So anyone who can get a hold of, of working writers and, uh, and get that gig, and I think that's the best. The other big one is write scripts all the time. Shoot and write just every second. I didn't have the opportunities you guys have of getting things seen. A two minute comedy short can be seen by millions of people if it's good now by just you know bumping it up on YouTube and try to avoid the kind of dead-end jobs like PAing and it's just I know so many people who went that production route and if you want to be a first AD or a line producer PAing is great if you want to write and produce just working as a writing assistant in the daytime and at night write your own movies and on the weekends shoot your movies with all your friends and that's you, I, I can't, if you have any talent at all, within a couple years, someone will figure out you have it and will give you a gig. Along the way, Mr. Roach was connected with SNL grad Mike Myers, thanks to his literal rock star wife, Susanna Hoffs, from the Bengals. And from the union of Myers and Roach, sprang our favorite 60s British spy. So who is this Austin Powers? the ultimate gentleman spy. Irresistible to women, deadly to his enemies, a legend in his own time. Allow myself to introduce myself. We hold the world ransom for one million dollars. Do you really expect them to pay? No, Mr. Powers. I expect them to die. I shall call him Minnie. Get in my belly! You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. Yeah, baby! <laughs> I had 10 years to get ready for the leap, because uh, I graduated <laughs> in 86 um, from USC Film School, graduate, graduate student, and uh, I had done a few things. I'd written a little bit, and I'd shot some second unit on some campy sci-fi things and stuff. Mike Myers, I knew him indirectly through our wives, kind of knew each other. I had uh, done some work on a, uh, a very bizarre sort of psychological, almost David Lynch-style thriller. It was about <laughs> Adolf Hitler and the psychology of evil. Mike saw that and said, oh, you should do Austin Powers. So that's, and that's somewhat true because he was... Uh, he was a World War II history um, buff. We had things in common. They just weren't, you know, James Bond-derived uh, comedies. But uh, it was a pretty big leap, and he just kept saying to them, I'm not going to do it unless 
this guy, I think he is the guy, and he is really the one who took the crazy leap. Then the studio went along with that risk, but Mike really staked everything. That's how it happened. The pitch for Austin Powers must have been tricky. It's a riff on the James Bond formula, but not a parody. It's a comedy that would play many of its jokes as dry as a vodka martini. Shake it, not stir it. Mr. Roach needed to convince the studio that his unusual vision for this comedy could work. You know, we had a lot of influences. That was one of the things to try to avoid just being a parody movie. We wanted it to seem like it was sort of um, derived from a lot of different influences. Well, the way I got the job, because I didn't really have a reel or anything to show, but I cut together some clips from movies that I had been aware of that were sort of off-center blow up, you know, which we ripped off heavily at the end with all the photographing, but um, also a, a movie called The Tenth Victim with Marcello Mastriani and uh, Ursula Andress. Uh, it was kind of a trippy uh, pop art thriller or something. I mean, I, I had to convince them that style could be funny and so that it wouldn't just be a parody. Because we didn't want it to seem like, uh, I like those kind of films that are deliberately parody films, but we hoped it would seem like, as I say, it was something else and you couldn't quite trace all the DNA of it. So we <laughs> used films like that. And I showed those clips in a big meeting uh, and said, I don't have anything to show to prove that I can do it, but I, here's some films I like. <laughs> and they, and they, they hired me based on liking the same films. $650 million and two sequels later, Austin Powers now seems like a no-brainer. But when Mr. Roach and Mr. Myers were making the film, success was anything but guaranteed. And if they listened to the test screenings, we would never have had the shagadelic spy with Danger as his middle name. It says here, name Danger Powers. No, 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 no. Danger's my middle name. It wasn't that big of a hit. It never previewed well. We, pre we did some previews in this very room. People didn't get it at first. It, it came out as a modest hit that summer. And uh, it could have just ended there. If Mike DeLuca had not been so brave, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the preview process, but you, you invite people to rooms like this. They come and watch the film, fill out cards, and do a focus group. And you want to hit in a mainstream comedy, at least in the 80s, you know, to get a sense that your film will be successful in the scoring process. And we never got above 55. We started at a 48, and we worked our way up after three or four score previews. And DeLuca said, you know what? I, I know it's not, not everyone's going to get this. And we'll just put extra money in the marketing to kind of find the audience that will get it. And we'll take a shot. But most comedies, there are many director careers that would have been stopped totally. in the tracks after the first film. And it did become an acquired taste. And people, because it is weird. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of campy in a certain way. Camp isn't that successful in America. Usually it's that. You know, Mike's looking right into the camera, making muggy jokes. And that's not, that doesn't usually work for American yeah. audiences. So we didn't expect it to work. Honestly, we just made it because we love those films. And then the video took off in some weird way. And then Mike did this trailer for the second movie uh, where he pretended to be sort of a Darth Vader kind of breathing. Because <laughs> we, we Star Wars was coming out that summer. And... Uh, he, we did this long push into the back of the chair on the spaceship, and he turned around, and it's him, and he said, oh, expecting someone else? You were expecting someone else? <laughs> you know, and he has the cat, and it's Dr. Evil, and he says, if you see one movie this summer, see Star Wars, but if you see two movies, see Austin Powers. If you Power. see only one movie this summer, see 
Star Wars. But if you see two movies, see Austin Powers. That's right, Mr. Bigglesworth. We're back. And it exploded. It was I like know. a crazy phenomenon. That one crazy uh, teaser it wasn't even a full trailer. It was uh, months before the movie came out. And, and that sort of fanned the video sales on the first one. And then by the time the second, came, second one came out, everybody was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was fun. The midnight shows and the whole deal was really a, a blast. But it was not predictable <laughs> in any way. So I, once I was in that club, I honestly was kind of naive about it. Um, you know, you take your first film for scale and you just, you're so, <laughs> I was so lucky to even get a break. And Mike and I, you know, worked so closely together and I, I was like on the job training for me because he knew so much about comedy. He actually has a system in his mind, uh, you know, having done SNL, Second City, and uh, worked with Del Close in improv training, Lauren Michaels in SNL. I mean, he just has an encyclopedic uh, brain about comedy. He could right. give a master course, you know, that would blow your mind and why certain things are funny and why things that you think would be funny are yeah. not, you know, and I learned while I was doing it. So then once you get in a club, I started realizing, wow, this, this is actually a good club to be in. And uh, <laughs> it was, that was thrilling. It was really cool. Austin Powers opened numerous doors for Jay Roach, eventually leading him to his next comedic trilogy, Meet the Parents. Despite the massive success and star powers of Austin Powers 1 and 2, Mr. Roach admits that he did not feel any more confident when helming meet the parents. In comedy, confidence almost, at least for me, doesn't exist. You, you're always insecure. It's why most people in comedy are right. really crazy and pretty <laughs> neurotic because you, it just never feels funny enough. Unfortunately, in most of the films I've been involved with on the comedy side, the scripts never come together entirely and you have to start shooting before right. you have the ending. And right. so you're kind of writing every night. And my mental health traced through uh, my comedy films, they're really deep dips <laughs> every time, <laughs> especially in prep. So, um, and De Niro scared the hell out of me and scared the hell out of you know, Ben Stiller too, which I saw in the, in the dinner and said, oh, this is going to work, you know, because he was intimidated. <laughs> then we did the sequel to Meet the Parents, and then it was Dustin Hoffman, Barbara Streisand, and we, we didn't want to make a sequel unless we brought something new, yeah. but I felt like it was, it was suicidal. Yeah. And they were known at the time as being kind of tricky people to harness, and they were sweet as pie. They were great, you know, and, and most of the people who, once they get performing for each other, one secret in comedy is just cast only funny people, the funniest, especially in improv, right. so that they always are playing with each other. And yes. then you can kind of just, <laughs> you know, sort of set the table. Yeah. And a lot of the comedy is around tables <laughs> in those movies and just kind of get out of the way. Confident or not, Mr. Roach was able to finesse terrific comedic work from a trio of legendary performers who have been known to be, well, let's just say at times, difficult. Dustin Hoffman, Barbara Streisand, and the original Raging Bull, Robert De Niro. You know, Greg's in medicine, too. Oh, really? Yeah. What field? Uh, nursing. <laughs> That's cute. Not many men in your profession, though, are they, Greg? No, Jack. Not traditionally. Greg, my father was never in the rare flower business. He was in the CIA for 34 years. I'm a patient man. That's what 19 months in a Vietnamese prison camp will do to you. I'm a sex therapist specializing in senior sexuality. Look at this. I married a teenager. Oh. At least you have the libido of a teenager. I gave her a little matinee today. <laughs> Mom, I'm truly not comfortable having this conversation with you. I've been telling you that since I was 11. I will bring you down, baby. I will bring you down to Chinatown. You want to hear a story? 
I milked a cat once. I had no idea you could milk a cat. Oh yeah, you can milk anything with nipples. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? I did start to develop a kind of reputation for um, working with people who hadn't been known as being tricky to work with. But they often were so cool. And Bob was challenging for me only because I was projecting onto him the killer guy. He actually turned out to be an incredibly generous and, and cool guy. I always tried to keep Ben and him at each other's throats if I could, but it didn't last long because Bob is really cool. And he was even cooler on the second film because he had Streisand and, and Hoffman and yeah. uh, all these people, and they none of them wanted to disappoint each other, so they were often just performing for each other. A lot of it's situational, and our situations turned out to be fun. And I actually got to ride on their coattails. You know, Ben has directed many yeah. times. So to have a, a star who's capable of solving comedy problems with you, uh, you know, as almost like a fellow director in that moment is brilliant. So. It goes to what I was saying before. I'm, I don't have any special, you know, charm. It's, it's more about... I do so much homework to convince myself that it's working because I'm so scared it's not <laughs> that if I can get over my own fear and terror and anxiety dreams that slowly eat away at my <laughs> organs, then I can go on the set. You know, there's nothing Burt Reynolds can do that's scarier than what I've done to myself. But with all those guys, they will push you hard, you know, right. this isn't good enough. Why? What's going on? Why is that idiot standing over there in my eyeline? Like, and they're right. They're, it's not good enough until it's good enough. And none of those people are compromising, easygoing people. They're excellent and they demand excellence. And yes. if they know I'm just as scared about doing something less than excellent, I'm sort of invincible. From an ego point of view, I have no ego. So try to hurt my ego, good luck. Mr. Roach's approach to directing comedy requires both intricate planning and coverage while still letting the actors do their thing. In film school, you're taught to kind of work it all out and diagram it, and I did that. And there's many jokes in Austin Powers that are very geometrical. For example, blocking his naked bits, both, yeah. both his and Elizabeth's. <laughs> exactly. There's geometry there that, you know, you could chart a NASA launch with as much time as we spent on lining things up. And, and uh, some of the set pieces in Austin films were so complex that they had to be pre-blocked and pre-visualized. You know, I'd sit and just work it out and draw. I'd, I'd start with overhead diagrams, just little circles with representing people uh, moving around on a various pieces of paper. And then, and then I start to storyboard it with the storyboard artist who I just act out what I see in the frame and how it will evolve. But I only do that in the super technical uh, geometrical scenes. Mm -hmm. For everything else, all the performance scenes, you have to trust that when you get there and, and if you've sold what matters in the scene and where the turning points are, that the actors will tell you how to block it. You will say, let's just read it and then let's read it again. Now let's start walking around. And they're like iron filings around a magnet. You know, the right blocking emerges because there's a force field in a way that is the right blocking. And then it's up to you to make sure the camera is in the right place. And I only wish I could do more scenes where I didn't cover so much. That's one of the things I keep trying to work on in my uh, evolution as a director is I prefer long masters that evolve. And But in comedy, if you don't do oppositional angles, you right. can't cut out the crappy stuff. In comedy, you just don't know what's going to work. And there's such a high mortality rate. If you don't have the op oppositional angles, you can't 
extract and, or, or expand the scenes. So you'll see in a lot of the cutting, I often set up an axis and stay on one side of it. The main thing is just trust the actors and don't over puppeteer them. Mr. Roach appreciates what an actor brings to a project. When he was pitching his political satire, The Campaign, he sold the film to studios on just the premise and the star power of Zach Galifianakis and Will Ferrell. The campaign is an interesting story because we sold it on a pitch here at Warner Brothers and because it was myself, Zach and Will who had come to me to ask me to do it, all of us were in the room pitching a story and we only had about three paragraphs. And we told all the studios, we want to make this film in about six months and we want you to green light it in the room or don't take the pitch. <laughs> so we got all of their, it was very arrogant to do this, but uh, we got them all to each of the studios that were interested to put their, not only their head of the studio and, and their creative executives, but the head of marketing, uh, both domestic and international, head of publicity, domestic, international, head of physical production. Oh my so God. we had like 12, the quote unquote green light committee that studios now have in the actual room listening to the pitch. And we didn't have the actors, so Adam McKay, Chris Henry, and myself had to sort of act out, you know, the parts and how they would go. Um, and we're not good at that. <laughs> so um, we had to, we just had to have a hook, you know. And it was an example of where, okay, it's it's two political candidates in the South, a kind of loser, uh, slacker incumbent who's just coasting along, and an upstart played by Zach, and, and they could picture that character we were talking about uh, doing this slightly effeminate uh, Southern conservative. I am beholden to only one man, and that is the greatest American that has ever lived, Jesus Christ. And they're just going to smear the crap out of each other in a, in a relentless <laughs> battle of negative campaigning until one of them dies, you know, basically. Marty Huggins can't even take care of his own wife, so I did. That night, Marty's wife voted multiple times. I'm Cam Brady, and I seductively approved this message. Zach and Will, two of the funniest guys on earth, what do you think? And that was the pitch. <laughs> but it was, it, it actually did, you could kind of picture what the movie became off of that pitch. It was a stupid way to, from a directing standpoint, to ever get into it because you think, oh good, we've got them hooked and we're committed and we have a shoot date and a release date by three or four days later. And then you go, oh no, we don't have a script. <laughs> <laughs> and we, it was, oh, it was so excruciating. Again, I, I swore I would never do that. But, you know, if you have a, what I call a controlling idea of, in your own mind, of what is the hook and, and Meet the Parents, you know, I talk about it because that one, we had a little more of a script, but it was touch and go almost every day. There was a threat to shut it down really? uh, for different reasons, budget reasons, uh, right. you know, actor reasons. And for me, it was so easy to say, don't know, yeah, but don't forget, it's a guy who loves a girl so much and is sure he doesn't, he doesn't deserve her, but is going to overcompensate and try so hard to get her that he's just going to make it worse by sneaking and lying <laughs> and becoming exactly the person no parent would want to have be engaged to your daughter. And the person he's going to come up against is a human lie detector, a person who is a bullshit detector meets a bullshitter. How can you, how can that not work? If it's Ben Stiller and he's, you know, the, the world's most interesting bullshitter and Robert De Niro, who is an assassin, a killer, dressed in soft sweaters and a, and a little cat and a waspy wife. That's like, that sounds funny. So that's how you, if I, if I know I can tell that story because as a director, you become this sort of cult leader of the, of the faith and whatever you're doing, 
if you can tell with that much enthusiasm to not just the studio, but to the to the VP who's trying to convince you, you know, to shoot it this way, and you don't want to shoot it that way, and here's why, because this <laughs> idea depends on this tour, or the costume designer trying to sell you, right. you know, you, you have to, you just have to keep organizing it back to that one controlling idea. And if the pitch is strong in the room when you first set it up, you can keep pitching it to everybody who threatens that pitch, all threatens that concept all along the way until it, you know, it sort of survives <laughs> somehow and, and turns into a One of Mr. Roach's fondest collaborations was working with writer Douglas Adams, the remarkable mind behind The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The extraordinary story of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy begins very simply. It begins with a man, an Earth man to be precise, who no more knows his destiny than a tea leaf knows the history of the East India Company. The answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is 42. Sadly, Mr. Adams did not get to see the final product. I didn't direct Hitchhikers, um, but the most amazing thing about nearly directing and then ending up producing it uh, was working with Douglas Adams because he saw Austin 1 and uh, had been trying for years to come up with screenplays for Hitchhikers and a guy named Michael Nesmith from The Monkees introduced us and uh, you know and it was an amazing and an unbelievably transcendent experience working with him. He's one of the funniest people I'd ever met and uh, just, you know, a brainiac. And it was sort of like, he's, he's very similar to John Cleese in my mind and how he looks at life and approaches life. And I was such a, a Python fan that, um, anyway, so I worked with him for quite a while and then he, uh, he sort of struggled. Disney didn't get it and he died. He died, you know, having moved here, ready to do it. And it was very sad. Uh, and. I just couldn't face doing it without him. So I talked to uh, two guys that I met. They came up with a really, actually kind of a, a novel twist on it and invented a lot of new things on top of Douglas's script. So it was, uh, that, was, uh, that, was a, that was actually a tricky one. <laughs> if there's any modern talent that can match the genius of Douglas Adams, it is Sasha Baron Cohen, the man behind Borat, Bruno, Ali G, and most recently, Who is America? The finding the perfect vehicle for Mr. Cohen's Kazakh creation turned out to be a very bumpy ride. Once they let Borat be Borat, the resulting film shattered our funny boats. My name is Borat. In Kazakhstan, it is illegal for more than five women to be in the same place, except for in brothel or in grave. I have come to make Pamela Anderson's my wife. Great success. This is Natalia. She is my sister. She is number four prostitute in all of Kazakhstan. Nice. My name is Borat. I come from Kazakhstan. We support your war of terror. Great success. It was hard to get a story. And actually, Trey Parker and Matt Stone worked with us for months on a more scripted version. Um, but it was so scripted that it didn't allow Sasha to do his live interaction with real people. So then we went back and started over with Sasha and all his writers. Um, the trickiest part for me was getting used to being sued. <laughs> I, I got sued 15 times, I think, or something. Personally, my name, wow. you, are, you are now being sued for millions of dollars because you have invaded my privacy. 
Yeah, uh, we did invade your privacy, um, <laughs> but we think we had a right to. And um, we won all the cases. We weren't at risk ourselves because they always indemnify you. He must be impossible to insure now based on how many types of suits. Because even if you win the suits, the legal expenses are high. He'd been doing it for 10 years. And if I come to you and I say, I'm doing this movie with this, this uh, Kazakhi reporter, don't worry, he's, a, he's just a representative of the youth of Kazakhstan and he's come to America to figure it out. You would say, oh, okay, uh, that sounds good. So uh, you, you would sign it and read probably the first three pages. Well, on yes. page 56 at the bottom, <laughs> it will say, um, by signing this, you uh, agree that we can use your likeness even if the Kazakh journalist turns out not to be a Kazakh journalist, and even <laughs> if the movie turns out not to be a documentary, and even if, and like, it's like, it basically outlines everything he's gonna do, and you agree to it without realizing that you are signing off to be in Borat, the comedy movie. <laughs> Lawyers now do seminars based on that contract. Wow. The crazy thing, even people who didn't sign it sued us, People who would wander, like he's in New York City. He went after this one guy who was like a Wall Street executive or something. And the guy freaked out and like was chased down the road and just Borat's chasing him. I want to kiss you, you know. <laughs> and that poor guy didn't sign anything, didn't see the posters that say, if you stand around in this area, you could be filmed and still lost the lawsuit because the judge said what Sasha's doing is in the public good because it's exposing racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and the public good uh, of the film overrides. overrides your individual right to privacy at that moment. I will say the one cool thing that I got to do in that movie, I didn't direct the film, but I directed all of the publicity stunts after the movie when he was in the green thong on the beach. Yes. And <laughs> When he uh, went, we went to the White House, and um, he, we found out that the, the um, Prime Minister, I guess, of Kazakhstan was coming to America. Well, a couple weeks before, he threatened to sue Sasha. That was like, oh, thank you. That's the best thing that could ever happen. So we went to the Kazakh embassy. He's in character. We found out the, the guy was coming over in, in D.C. and was being presented with this giant statue on the lawn of the embassy of Kazakhstan. So we thought, oh, great. We'll just show up, too, and see what happens. <laughs> and uh, as they unveiled the statue, it was the prime minister himself riding on a tiger carrying a hawk. This week, Washington is playing host to the president of Kazakhstan, a former Soviet republic. Well, the threat comes from Borat, who may be Kazakhstan's most famous representative, e even though he doesn't really exist. And the guy who plays him isn't really from there. The unveiling today on the embassy lawn here of a Kazakh warrior riding a flying leopard provided just the right note of solemnity. All the embassy, they celebrated and they went to lunch. Well, all the CNN, NBC, uh, about two dozen media outlets were there on the risers facing where the podium was. And they just were clearing it out. And we ran in with a podium, dropped it down, and Sasha started giving a speech. <laughs> my name is Borat. I am here to present my movie film to President George Walter Bush. I would like to make a comment on the recent advertisements on television and in media about my nation of Kazakhstan, saying that women are treated equally and that all religions are tolerated. These are disgusting fabrications. In fact, main purpose of Premier Nazarbayev's visit to Washington is to promote this movie film. This screening will be followed by cocktail party at Hooters on 825 7th Street. 
Thank you. I must now return to my embassy where I have talks with my government. Xinguyi. Well, the embassy people called the cops, um, who now had mostly gone to lunch following him, and said, there's someone breaking into our embassy. There's someone trying to invade the embassy. So you see the cops in the background of the footage looking at the window saying, "Where?" and he, because here's a politician giving a speech that's supposed to be going on. And they're in the background trying to figure out who's breaking into the embassy. And he just kept going, going, got publicized worldwide of Sasha Baron Cohen in front of the, with the guy with the hawk in the background. And if you like your comedy filthy, Borat has one scene so raunchy that you might never recover. I've never seen an audience react to anything like the way they react to one scene in that movie, which was the naked fight. You We got to go all over the world presenting the, this movie, and I have never seen people laugh harder at anything. People were going, Whoa! Uh, close up and two people ran down to the screen and ran back high-fiving the audience and were like it was like a tent revival it was like people speaking in tongues or something and you could study that and figure out how to surf laughs and we you know it happens in previews in rooms like this where you sit and try to figure out okay we got them laughing harder here how can we make them laugh harder here and keep going and surf that for I think that goes on for you know two or three minutes that was scripted, you know, they had inappropriate uh, positions they got into. <laughs> and the only part that was unscripted was they run out into the hall chasing each other and they go into the elevator. These ladies shriek and run out and then they're still standing there and they're, they're looking very guilty and the doors close and then the camera slowly pans over and there's this guy, just a civilian, just trapped there. And he was not, he was, he was a, not an actor and just was like, what the hell is going on? And, the door opens, they run out, and then they run into a banquet-style meeting room in a hotel filled with mortgage bankers who really were real mortgage bankers. And they, they just run into the room and start fighting on stage naked. We have a special guest here this evening. Uh, Ruth Painter is here. In making two movies with Sasha, he only broke character once in the middle of shooting. After, he, he can be in character for nine hours, but on the set, if someone catches him out of character, we shut down that second, because the gig's yeah. up, the people know. That day, he broke character and said, don't hurt Azimut, don't hurt him. You know, because the security guy was choking him, was so pissed off that he was gonna. So oh. that was real, that part was real. Just like Sasha Baron Cohen, Jay Roach has to stay in character at all times when directing. His inner thoughts may be filled with fear, uncertainty, and despair, but he still needs to project that all is good. His advice, if you have doubts when directing, keep them to yourself. I always get overwhelmed when I'm directing, and, mm -hmm. and there's so many aspects to it, and you're in charge of everything. How do you deal with something like that, and do you actually share it with your actors or a producer, or do you just... You, you know, don't share it with anyone involved in the film. <laughs> um, because you have to actually be seen as being so um, calm and... 
the grown-up in the playground or you know or the insane asylum depending on what it is which is tough because you're you really most often if you I can on the set okay good let's try it again yeah that's good let's try inside are cartoon characters running around hitting bells and <laughs> pulling on alarms and trying to put out fires and getting the suicide machinery going you know because it just seems like you're not going to survive it really feels like it's going to kill you, especially in prep. For me, I, once I'm shooting, I actually do calm down a little bit. But in prep, it just doesn't seem possible ever. I mean, it gets worse, too, because the expectations get higher. You think it's going to get easier. In prep, <laughs> I'm usually a uh, basket case. And I, I talk to my wife about it, and she's she's pretty cool uh, at keeping me calm. Um, I'm trying to think of what's the worst I've ever revealed. I mean, when I got sick on Meet the Fockers was crazy because I, I was shooting a big scene with all the actors and at three o'clock I noticed my ankles were swelling up and by eight o'clock I couldn't move. I couldn't, my, all my joints were like, you have the mumps in every joint. And I was, the, the, the line producer took me to the hospital De Niro knew these people at UCLA, so they were like shoving gunshot wound victims out of the way, pregnant ladies out of the way. <laughs> Get this guy in there, you know, they were dragging me right into it because they were they were afraid their movie was going to, it cost them half a million dollars to, I was so stressed out and so not sleeping. You know, you can hide it, but it get, it's gonna get it's gonna get you. Comedy is so hard and it's so much harder. Doing these HBO movies, you'd think the Sarah Palin movie would be scary. That was yes. like, that was so much fun. It was like, because you don't, you're not worrying every second, is this funny enough? Because there's nothing more painful than bombing, you know, and putting up some scene in a preview and thinking it's going to be the ending. Finally, we've got the ending. Oh, thank God. People looking at it going, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's funny. <laughs> what? We just spent, you know, a week reshooting that ending. You don't like it? Cartoon yeah. characters running around again. So there's nothing you can do except just prepare and know what you care about, know what matters so much that all you can do is the best you can do and show up ready to fight for that and be persuasive and throw every ounce of your, your energy and your charm and your, you know, your willingness to put yourself out and not be embarrassed and not have any ego. And you have to have a tolerance for failure that is so high. I always say on, in dailies, on Meet the Parents, Everything we shot was terrible. It was terrible. It was like, what is De Niro doing? Why does he, he would sometimes start mugging because the crew was laughing, because he would he would think that because they were laughing. Yeah. And I would be going, what is going on? And you, you know, you get in the cutting room and you put in the one or, or 0.05% that's great. And it's amazing, with, with De Niro, it's amazing. You know, it's not just all right. that 99.5% <laughs> that sucked. No one's ever going to see that. <laughs> so you were thinking about all that the whole time when right. you were, you know, trying to figure out which vein you would open first at the, <laughs> at the monitors. That's, you don't have to, it's going to be okay if you just get that 0.5% of that day's shoot. You know, you can make a great movie out of it. So you just have to be kind of stupidly optimistic and delusional. <laughs> during the process and still fight for what you care about. And that's all you can do. You can't you just have to trick yourself into thinking it's going to be all right and, and fight for what you what matters in the scene. And, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I've definitely had some stuff that didn't work, you know, and that keeps me up, but it works eventually. Right now at some noisy dive bar, someone is doing a terrible Austin Powers impression. 
we can't blame Jay Roach for that, but we can thank him for Goldmember, Gaylord Fokker, Julianne Moore's Emmy-winning work as Sarah Palin, and the indelible sight of Dalton Trumbo writing in a bathtub. We want to thank Mr. Roach for sharing his story with us, and thanks to all of you for listening. By the way, if you got a little more time, check out our previous episode with Brian Cranston, talking about his work on Jay Roach's Trumbo. With Trumbo, he was such a, a chain smoker, and he had uh, an affectation, you know, and he went, he went up and down, because that, uh, his, uh, it, was a, it was a fun thing. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated and produced by Tova Leiter. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, Sean Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time. Release the sharks. Dr. Evil, it's about the sharks. We tried to get some, but it would have taken months to clear up the red tape. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. Now, evidently, my cycloptic colleague informs me that cannot be done. Would you remind me? What do I pay you people for, honestly? Throw me a bone here. What do we have? Sea bass. Right. They are mutated sea bass. Are they ill-tempered? Absolutely. Huh, well, that's a start.